0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hello?
2: Hello? Hello? Hi, is this, uh, would this perhaps be Mm -hmm. Dame Judy Dench (laughs) that I'm talking Mm to? (laughs) Nice to meet you all over the phone anyway.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm very excited to to get to talk to you. My name is Rhiannon. Mm -hmm. And uh, I host a podcast on opera called Aria Code. Right. For every episode, we focus on one aria, and we're focusing on Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking scene. It's great. Right. Kind of, and you right. know, you, you, you know a little bit about Lady Macbeth, and I know a bit about her. <laughs> I know
1: a bit about her. I played it twice.
2: I've seen a clip of you doing the sleepwalking scene, and I would guess it's the royal. Shakespeare Company version? Shakespeare Company. It's an absolutely stunning scene. And your intensity in that scene is just so deep. So it's just like, how do you start with Lady Macbeth? Where do you go with her?
1: It's usually kind of agreed that she's a monster of some kind. Mm. I don't think that was so. And I planned that I would make her somebody who's so absolutely mad about her husband that, that... if he was promised something and wanted it, then she would do everything in her power to make it happen. I think her ambition is entirely for him. Mm. There are some people who live through somebody they love. I mean, that's the only way I could find to play her.
2: Right.
1: So there are many reasons to play her as a villain. But my overall vision was not to excuse her in any way, or her behavior, but just, I mean, you, you
0: know, great love
2: can drive you insane. From WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera, this is Aria Code. I'm Rhiannon Giddens. Now that we're starting up a new season, I've been thinking about what makes great arias so powerful, and I think a big part of it is that they tap into our strongest emotions. One of the emotions that comes up over and over again in opera well, and in life is desire. That feeling deep in your gut of just really wanting something. For the next 10 episodes, every aria we explore will show us one facet of desire. And I'm not just talking about sex, you know? I'm talking about the things we want the most, like hope for a better future, you know, like wanting to get the spark back in your marriage. Wanting your children to be safe and free. You know, basically the things that get you out of bed every morning. And then there's ambition. And ambition is a very complicated kind of desire. You know, on the the one hand, it's a good thing, right? I mean, you got to have some sort of drive to get you through life. But when you get obsessed with it, when you get obsessed with power, with status, with money, whatever it is, it can turn dark really, really fast. And that's what happens in Macbeth. So here's a quick rundown. And look, even if you slept through high school English, if you've seen Game of Thrones or House of Cards, you'll catch on real quick. Now, it all starts with a prophecy. Three witches tell Macbeth that he's gonna be king, someday. Now his wife, Lady Macbeth, convinces him to fast-track it by killing King Duncan. Oh, and he does. It's super bloody. And then to secure the crown, the Macbeths hire assassins to kill the army general, Banquo. And then, since they're on a roll, they off the wife and kids of the thane of Fife. His friends call him Macduff. Is this clear? So Lady Macbeth is the driving force behind this epic bloodbath. She goads her husband the whole way, and seemingly without any remorse. But it all finally catches up with her in the sleepwalking scene. It turns out that she has a conscience after all, and her guilt comes spilling out in this aria, una macchia e qui tutora, which refers to that spot of blood she just can't get off her hands. And if you've ever heard the phrase, out damned spot, now you know where it comes from. Now, throughout the scene, she relives all of her crimes in a sort of eerie dream state. And then she walks off stage, never to be seen again the next thing we hear is that she's dead. Now, there's a lot going on here, so I've invited three really smart folks to help unpack
3: it. First, a certain soprano you may have heard of. Anna Netrebko, singing role of Lady Macbeth. Somehow i understand understanding her, and uh, I don't even need to act. I'm just being by myself, and uh, I don't know, easy.
2: (laughs) Next up. Hello. Anne hi. the classical music critic at The Washington Post. She used to study singing, but now she only performs in small,
4: intimate venues. I moved my singing largely to the shower, and not long ago at all, I was caught red-handed delivering the sleepwalking scene at some volume by my husband who had come home to pick something up and discovered Lady Macbeth in the room. And Tana Wochuck has had her own
2: sleepwalking scenes. I could not go on sleepovers as a kid because I would
5: really freak out my friends. (laughs) I'd sit up in bed with my eyes open, screaming, and definitely would get up and walk around
2: sometimes. In her waking life, she's a writer and writing teacher at NYU, and she has a special place in her heart for Shakespeare. And here they all are, decoding the sleepwalking scene from Verdi's Macbeth.
4: Verdi has a magnificent dramatic sensibility, and he was also a very astute portrayer of women. Shakespeare was a touchstone for him, and Lady
3: Macbeth is a particularly interesting figure. Well, it's cool to feel <laughs> to feel what you can play Shakespeare, and especially this one of his strongest characters. I mean, as an actress, for me, it's very interesting to interpretate this complicated (laughs) soul.
4: (laughs) The journey that she traverses dramatically and also vocally from her first aria, which is a big coloratura showpiece and hard to sing, to the sleepwalking scene, which is this kind of foggy, dramatic monologue, dream world, is a remarkable depiction of a human sort of breakdown. You can hear something big has happened to this character.
3: The beginning
5: of the play has Macbeth away at war. And when we see Lady Macbeth, she's alone in the castle. And my sense of her is that she's been taking care of everything. And when her husband comes home, you know, as many women who have gone into the workplace during a war, and then the men come home and they have to go back into the home, she's sort of shoved back into this domestic space that she's too big for, um, like Alice in Wonderland. And it's just really interesting to see how this thwarted female ambition in the play destroys her and everyone around her, but also the sort of excitement of seeing this powerful,
3: ambitious woman who's willing to do anything. She's a strong woman. She's a leader. She's a queen. (laughs) She wants action.
4: She wants power. She wants more out of life than Macbeth was giving her and sort of married to this well-meaning but kind of nebbishy guy and trying to spark him on. There's a kind of frustrated, creative
3: drive in her that's coming out. She is the one who wants to have a power, the one who needs to have a power. Just in a little bit wrong way.
5: Our modern version of Lady Macbeth has a a sort of secret history. It starts in sort of the mid-19th century, around 1834. And previously, the role had been played very feminine, very seductive. Someone who really got Macbeth to do
3: what she wanted through sex. Yeah, she's very sexual. Yeah, why not? I mean, (laughs) everything is driving you on sex too. And
5: then along came this 19-year-old American actress named Charlotte Cushman. Then her first role that she was given was Lady Macbeth, which was really a big deal. And so she wanted to do something new with it. She couldn't play the seductress because she looked very masculine. She was tall and strong and had very exaggerated features and a really gravelly voice. And so she played Lady Macbeth as a bully, as a powerful force of nature, One critic wrote that he was afraid Lady Macbeth was going to hit him. (laughs) But it was a huge hit. People loved it. And it's a little bit ironic because Cushman herself was extremely ambitious at a time when there was very little for her to do with that ambition. This was a time when women were agitating for the vote or to even be able to keep their own income when they got married. And Cushman really took advantage of the fear of ambitious women and of the idea that women's ambition would actually turn to madness, which a lot of people did believe.
4: Shakespeare's play has a very sort of basic construct of ambitious people meeting with downfall. just how ambitious she is. But well, it's not open to question, her ambition is all-consuming. She had so much drive to this crown, to the you know, power. Certainly she is the power behind the throne and certainly she is constantly driving her husband to do what he does. She's quick, she's strategic. She instantly starts to figure out how to put
5: this
3: plan into action. She thinks what everything is easy. Everything. At that point.
4: <laughs> so we're in Macbeth's castle, which is in sort of wee hours of the morning silence, waiting for the doom that's advancing on it. Lady
5: Macbeth walks under the dark stage in her
3: nightdress. She's walking with the lamp because she's afraid to sleep in the dark. (laughs) And
4: we have the doctor and nurse who are watching her, and she's always trying to clean her arms. The doctor says, why is she rubbing her hands? And the serving woman says she believes she's washing them.
5: Are telling us, this is weird, she's never done this before. <laughs> and now she's sleepwalking. What's going on? And then we hear Lady Macbeth in monologue for most of the scene.
0: She's
3: kind of whispering whispering and trying to to clean her arm, trying to get rid of it and very aggressively. And this situation of not sleeping in not finding the peace even in a sleep is like endless nightmare. It's make her exhausted physically and mentally
4: sleepwalking was very in vogue in the 19th century and this idea that you reveal in your sleep the truth that you're trying to hide when you're awake is almost archetypal a a trope that reappears in plays and fiction this idea that you can't hide your crimes because something will give you away you yourself will give you away
5: we know now if you look at neuroscience that sleepwalking is the breakdown of the normal fail-safes in the brain that keep our body from doing things while we are asleep and dreaming. And it's a good illustration of what's happening to Lady Macbeth is that her fail-safes have all broken down and she is no longer in control. Her subconscious and her soul are troubled. So it becomes a much more sort of a cry from the heart
4: and we feel for her. Much of the aria is done in a kind of suffocated voice. It's always a little bit quiet. And the orchestra underneath is doing this very neurotic, sort of driven... And then it kind of groans. And that's where the out-damned spot, out I say, begins. In Italian, una macchia qui
3: It's uh, horrible if you if you imagine her walking in a Scottish castle. Uh, it is scary. No, no, I don't want to see that. <laughs>
4: Verdi specified that she should not have too beautiful a voice. He wanted kind of an ugly sound, which is also unique in opera. It's all about trying to make a beautiful voice. The idea that the composer himself was taking a deliberate step away from so-called bel canto, beautiful singing, to something that would achieve a dramatic end is a point that many people
3: focus on about this role. I heard many times they say, OK, the voice has to be uh, not beautiful and it has to be some weird sounds. Yes, it does. It has to be. The performer has to have uh, plenty of variations of the color, from the haunting voice to the almost screaming. And therefore, I'm changing my voice a lot here and um, adding some very unpleasant sound, even a little bit vulgar sound, because without that, the character will be not complete. It has to show all this uh, horror of the situation. The voice has to be scary.
5: So I think Lady Macbeth can best be understood when we think about her in terms of the grand sweep of politics and women in politics. She is someone who wants to do great things in the world, big things. She wants to change the course of history. She wants to to
4: rule. She doesn't just want to have power through her husband. We see that with women running for office over and over again the whole Hillary Clinton figure of a woman who had her own ambitions and worked with her husband and then broke out and went on to achieve things of her own and couldn't be allowed to succeed. The figure of a powerful woman is a difficult figure for our society to wrap its collective mind around.
5: There is a theory called the king's two bodies, which is that the king must be the ruler of the people and the caretaker of the people, both a father figure and a mother figure. But guess what? When a woman is a ruler of the people, she is not feminine enough. And when she is too maternal, she's too soft. And if you level this at a woman, there's very little she can do about it. So in fact, she can't partake of the king's two bodies at all. She
4: can only be a Lady Macbeth. So in the first section, she's reliving the murder of the king, Duncan, which is the first misdeed that sets all of their crimes in action.
3: And she is insulting Macbeth, you, who are you, you're afraid, get out, go, I told you, go. This is, has to be very nasty.
5: Then she stops, and she reflects, and she says, yet who would have thought the old man to have so much blood
3: in him? It's so much blood and so much killing around. Who could imagine that?
4: Who could have imagined so much blood? And which she repeats a couple of times in the Italian, tanto sangue immaginare imaginar. imaginar. That blood is sort of the underpinning of the entire aria. It
3: keeps coming back. I can't get my hands clean. When I was preparing the role, I wanted to go. Uh, I wanted to go in the place where they're killing the animals and feel what it means. So much blood. I went. Uh, to see the sacrifice of the lamps, and uh, I know it's a different thing, but I I wanted to experience that. I saw everything. I saw it. Um, no, I wasn't scared. But it's personally me, you know. I'm not afraid of, of the blood. But of course, uh, to kill somebody, to kill person, probably this is a Little different, this I cannot tell you because I did not experience that, and hopefully never. (laughs) I just can't imagine.
4: At the end of each sort of dream episode, Lady Macbeth comes to kind of a pause. And that pause is generally punctuated by the doctor and serving woman coming in saying, what did she say? Or, oh, terror. And then the orchestra will kind of change direction a little bit. So, for example, when she finishes the episode with Duncan, then the orchestra kind of shifts into a longer-limbed accompaniment, and that's when she begins singing about the Thane of Fife, Macduff. She says, Wasn't the Thane of Fife a husband and a father? From which the doctor and the serving woman correctly infer that she has had the wife and children killed. And their cries of, Oh terror! Our kind of further punctuation along with that obsessive orchestra, driving home these points that Lady Macbeth is sort of dropping like pebbles out of her mouth.
3: Her mood is changing completely to desperation. It's really horrible. Con dolore, with the pain. Hmm.
4: She goes on from there to say all the oils of Araby will never wash clean this little hand.
3: Nothing can take away this blood. These hands ever will be clean.
4: Washing out the blood is her main focus at that moment. going up into this very wistful sort of crescendo.
5: Blood has a smell. And I think in the moment where she says all Arabia is not able to cleanse the little hand with its balsams, cleanse doesn't necessarily mean clean off only. It also means, like, purify. And... Certainly in Shakespeare's time, they didn't do much bathing. But um, what they did do is perfume themselves to rid themselves of smell. And in Arabia is where all the perfumes came from. So it's this idea of being able to mask the stench of the blood and therefore make it go away.
4: And then she's urging her husband to get his nightgown on and go to bed.
3: The voice and the instruments and the orchestra are blending together. They're going after each other, they're hunting each other, they're helping each other.
4: And then she pours out that Banquo can't climb out of his grave.
3: It's very heavy, it's very dramatic and it has to have a full power, there is no time to rest. And she does say over and over, Banquo
5: is dead, those who died arise not again. But she's really saying it because she knows that's not the case. She knows that she's always going to be haunted by these ghosts.
4: I really love the phrase "What's done cannot be undone." non poi la cosa fatta. It's a beautiful phrase, and it's actually kind of hard to sing because it goes up only to a G, but it's got to be sort of all in one breath, and that sums up the whole aria—the sort of sheer beauty of that moment coming out of all of the murk of her thoughts and her confusion, all of the good that might have been, you know, and the ways that things that have happened can't be changed is, for me, very powerful and contextualizes all the regret that she's only half-uttering for the rest
3: of it. This uh, sleepwalking scene shows us how far this torture could come to the human mind and human soul so she completely destroyed she's done she's finished by grief by uh, this horror and by by guilt what she has and so she broke she she broke
4: Normal usage in the 19th century would have been to end a mad scene with a cabaletta, which is a flurry of interpolated vocal ornament, lots of rapid notes, often going very high and low, up and down the scale. Verdi doesn't really leave room for that kind of dramatic interpolation, but he does send her up to the high notes in the ornamentation when she's saying, come on, Macbeth, come on. It's a very quiet climax. everything kind of fades away. And then she comes back down and gives her final gesture again up to the high D flat with a little thread of voice as she says, Come, andiamo. And that's her final word of the aria as she walks out, is Come, andiamo.
3: The last note, it's, uh, I mean, it's piano. I'm mm, For that, I'm changing completely my voice and my approach. I'm putting mm, the whole phrase in a completely different place. That's how i able to reach that high note. <laughs> it's a hell. It's a hell to do. It's really, really hard. Uh, I mean, that that's needs a lot of practice. But, uh, ooh, yeah, I mean... I do what I have to do.
2: That was soprano Anna Trepko, music critic Ann Majette, and writer Tana Wolchuk decoding the sleepwalking scene from Verdi's Macbeth. You'll hear Anna sing the whole thing after the break. Aria Code is supported by the Metropolitan Opera. Though the
5: Opera House is currently closed due to the coronavirus pandemic, the Met continues to bring grand opera to audiences through a series of free online performance streams. Each night during the closure, a complete opera from the company's award-winning live in HD series of cinema transmissions is made available for free on-demand viewing. Learn more
2: at medopera.org slash streams And now, Anna Netrebko sings Una macchia e qui tutora on stage at the Metropolitan Opera. Mm-hmm. ¶¶ I right. Wow. Anna Nutrebko sleepwalking right out of the story of Macbeth. Well, that's it for this episode of Aria Code. If you like it, it's really helpful if you can tell some of your friends or leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Aria Code is a co-production of WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera. The show is produced and scored by Marin Lazian. Emily Lang is our associate producer. Brendan Francis Noonan of Public Address Media is our editor. And Matt Abramovitz is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton. And original music by Hannes Brown. And special thanks to Dame Judi Dench for her insights into Lady Macbeth. I want you guys to know I managed not to fangirl not one time during that whole conversation, even though I really, really, really wanted to. Well, I'm Rhiannon Giddens see you next time. I have to know, are you an opera fan at all?
1: I am an opera fan. I have been an opera fan for a long time. But do you know, I've never seen Macbeth. Oh, have you not? I've never seen the opera. Isn't that shameful?
2: Well, I don't think
0: it's shameful. It just means it's oh, something... Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>